Plucky Ladies Podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence, hosted by Jess Cat. Today on Plucky Ladies, I speak with Dr. Tammy Walker. Tammy is both an associate professor of social psychology in the Department of Psychology and an associate professor in the College of Law at the University of Arizona. She has so many letters behind her name, it is astonishing, having earned a BBA from Texas A&M, an MSc from the London School of Economics, a JD from Columbia Law School, and a PhD in psychology from the University of Virginia. Her decision to leave her job as a successful lawyer and pursue a PhD in psychology is one we all can learn from. Please enjoy my chat with the multi-talented Tammy Walker. Welcome, Tammy Walker. Thank you so much for coming to Plucky Ladies. Thank you for having me. All right. So I don't really know you very well, but I wanted to just let the listeners know how I came to know you, which is at the College of Science Welcome Reception for New Faculty. Mm -hmm. Um, I was there, and I was blown away by your credentials when they brought you up and introduced you to everybody. And the fact that you left your job as a pretty high-powered, successful practicing lawyer and decided to go get a PhD in psychology really attracted me to Mm -hmm. that story. And so I want to get into at some point talking about why you made that decision. But before we get there, um, I want to go back to the beginning a little bit and ask you about um, your childhood Mm -hmm. as a little girl. Did you know you wanted to be a lawyer always? How did you come to that decision to be in the law? So like most people, um, I remember being in kindergarten and thinking, okay, I want to be a doctor or I want to be a lawyer. Okay. Like, I want to be in charge, basically. Mm-hmm. And then um, I really liked biology, but then I figured out chemistry was no thank you. <laughs> so, so, so I was like, okay, well, I'll just be a lawyer then. I, I don't um, – and both of my parents were in um, – worked at the courthouse. Oh, so I grew up in Bryan College Station, Texas, which is where Texas A&M is. Yes. And my dad was a police officer, detective, mm-hmm. and my mom was – a county extension agent, which um, in our county meant that she was the head of the 4-H in oh, our county okay. and um, basically worked for the Texas A&M system in oh, many cool. different ways. Okay. But the office was in the courthouse, so I spent a lot of time um, in the courthouse, probably when I should not have been, Right. Um, <laughs> how, how old were you when you were hanging out at the courthouse, do you think? Uh, up until the age of nine, because my mom retired. So, I, And even... Uh, up until the age of nine, like I saw death penalty cases. Wow! Because <laughs> I was just wandering around. What? Um, yeah, and it, because it was a small town, literally everything was in the courthouse, meaning the jails in the courthouse. Oh, the wow! The clerk's office. You okay. know, like birth, death, marriage, everything happened in that one building. That's amazing. And so, um, I had a lot of exposure. Mm-hmm. To, that most kids would not have, for, sure. uh, most definitely, in terms sure. of um, both the good parts and the bad parts of society in some ways. I love that, that it's all happening in one place and you're seeing it yes. all sort of mashed up in that one place. Yes, and yeah. so I, I thought, well, I think I want to be a lawyer, but I hadn't really, um, I, I don't think I'd have ever really met uh, many, I certainly hadn't seen any, I remember when I saw um, the first black female lawyer that I'd ever seen you in do. my life. Yeah, and that was uh, so I volunteered at that courthouse when I was 18 because I thought, okay. well, I kind of want to have some idea of what lawyers do. And there was a woman who was, I can't recall if she was a defense attorney or a prosecutor, but mm-hmm. she was there. And I just came up to her and I was like, wow, you know, I want to be a lawyer too. Yeah. And it's so cool to see you here. Um, because my dad was the first um, African American detective in our uh, area. 
And wow. so um, along with him, though, because it was the 70s when he was hired, yeah. he also was hired at the same time that they had the first female detective. And, oh, wow. You know, okay. So I knew, I knew some of the female detectives. So I knew women in law enforcement, but I hadn't really necessarily um, seen lots of yeah. lawyers. And so um, I worked for a female judge mm-hmm. and volunteered with her, and I got to see all of these cases, and it really didn't deter me. Uh, I thought, okay, I can do this. And I yeah. thought, particularly at the time, as I said, so so much happened in this courthouse. Life, mm-hmm. death, birth, um, uh, all kinds of civil cases, right. uh, juvenile cases. Div- mm-hmm. I saw a divorce, wow. couples of divorces. Yeah. And what struck me was that um, so many things were happening where the law affected people and they had no idea what was going on. Oh, right. Um, I saw cases where the defense attorney was meeting the person outside like 10 seconds beforehand and they're saying, What? Oh, okay. What's your name again? Okay, great. So we're going to be arguing, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and I saw lots of people who looked confused yeah. and who just didn't know what was going on. And I think um, now I know kind of naively, I thought, oh, I will be the person who takes all of the time and, and explains to people what's going to happen to them. Sure. And, and sure. But also part of it was I never wanted to be in that position right. where somebody has that kind of power over me mm-hmm. and I have no way of understanding or, right. or knowing that, even the context or the universe of possibilities, essentially. What's interesting to me about this is that you said when you were little, one of the things that drove you to either doctor or lawyer was this idea of being in charge. There's Mm -hmm. some power there. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all learn this when we're kids. There are certain jobs you hear about that you make a lot of money and you're in charge. But you actually came to this realization it was more that human side of it Mm -hmm. that actually lured you in where you thought not just about I'm going to be a high-powered lawyer and make a bunch of money, but, oh, these people don't know what's happening to them. Right. And that matters to me. Right. Right. So I think what has been consistent with me, even since the age of like five or six, is that I didn't necessarily want to be in charge of other people, but I wanted autonomy to do things the way that I thought that they should be done as opposed to... Um, having to follow somebody else's lead when that didn't make any sense to me. I am fascinated by that because how many kids at that age feel that way? I'm just always curious because for me it wasn't so much like that. And I think for a lot of kids, like you feel like you have to fall in line and you have to do what you're told and you have to, so you're very used to taking orders and mm-hmm. following authority. So to have that presence of mind at age five or six that you want autonomy is yeah. pretty is pretty remarkable. It, uh, it definitely is rare. I drove my mother nuts. I mean, there's literally <laughs> video of me at two just saying no. Yeah. And, and I'm not doing that. If it didn't make sense to me, I really wasn't going to do it. Right. Um, but, you know, I understand following orders. I went to Catholic school. You right. Know, school. So right. I, I get the do what you're told. But at the end of the day, if I, I had an innate sense of if this isn't right, if I don't feel good about it, then I'm just not going to do it. And there's pretty much nothing that you can say that's going to convince me otherwise. That's awesome. It's funny because I see a lot of things that go around with parenting that say, you know, mm-hmm. when your daughter is sassy and mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Like it, mm-hmm. it's tough when they're little, but you want to encourage that because it means they're going to grow up and be strong women and be able to assert themselves and their needs and their desires. And that's something that um, I think it's not inherent in us right. with little girls is that we tend to tell little girls to be pretty and be quiet and all these things. And yet girls, they have lions inside of them, right? They're, right. they're strong and they have opinions. Right. And I think I probably benefited my dad. I was, I'm an only child. And so my dad also um, was fairly secure in his manhood, meaning uh-huh. he just didn't necessarily do things because men did them or women did them or sure. anything like that. But 
he also never told me I couldn't do something because I was a girl and also right. made me do lots of things because why would you not do that? That's amazing. So, um, I love that. One of the things that I was thinking about that I think um, I think about how my experience might be different from other people's in some ways. And so one yes. way in which I get feedback in which that's true is my dad was very interested in uh, gadgets and technology. Okay. And so um, we had an Apple IIe, we had an Apple IIc. Yeah. I've basically gone my entire life having in a computer and being able to play around with it. Sure. I had um, coding classes when I was little. Not not helpful ones. Right. You know, like, like, you know, like yeah. we, had to, we had to program a turtle to, like, say hello, uh, yeah. you know, or program your name. Or right, something. right. It's not like, oh, this is great. But it did get me thinking about the way that the sort of logic that you need. I got sure. really great at logic because it's if this, then that. Sure, right? sure, sure. And I, I had to learn how to put my com computer together and, and, oh, and wow. you know, all of that kind of stuff. And right. I, it, and it still to this day surprises me when I talk to my friends and like I have a computer, I'm hooking up the router, I'm, I'm connecting my own computer network and I have a friend and I'm like, how do you survive? Like, how did you? I don't understand how you don't do it. No, how um, did you? Yeah. yeah well, that's uh, me. I can't do anything like that. Yeah. And I just shut down. Like, my kids will come to me and go, Mom, there's something going on with my Xbox or my internet. And I just say, don't talk to me about it because I turn into a raving lunatic trying to figure out how to make it work. Right. And I just don't get it. Right. Yeah. And my dad was kind of always like, no, you'll figure it out. So, uh, like, yeah. um, and part of that was his self interest. So I went to Texas AM in undergrad. And it was uh, 2.3 miles from my house. Okay. But I drove myself to school, and um, my parents uh, basically paid. I had a dorm that was on the fourth floor, mm -hmm. and they were like, Psh, "I'm not. We're too old for this. We're not packing anybody's right. stuff yeah. up four flights of stairs. <laughs> like, Figure it out." Yeah. No, they they were perfectly willing to pay somebody else to do it. So they just paired oh. somebody who already worked on campus. They're like. Hey, meet my daughter. Um, Help her carry her stuff. Time, yeah. And they stayed home. Yeah. And But when it came to hooking up my computer, one of the first things we had to do was to sign up for our email address. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Dad, are you going to come help me hook up my computer? He was like, nah, you got it. Nice. <laughs> you know, like, and at the time, I was like, can I get some help doing something? But, you know, it was always... Uh, no, there was always ne um, a never any doubt that I could do it or that I yeah. shouldn't be doing it. Nope. And so to have other people later on say, well, what do you mean you can, you know, I, like right now I have my own network attached server in my house. Okay. You know, I accept that that is far outside the norm. Yes. Right. But, you know, I, I'm interested in it. I can think about how to do it. I can do it, basically. That so it was just that never-ending confidence your dad had in you. And he didn't even really have to say much except you'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. And you learned that confidence. Yeah. yeah. Which is such a gift. It's that we can give our kids. And I think now, yeah. especially parents don't do this as much these days where we right. want to do everything for them and we want to rescue them. And, we, and you know, this is in the zeitgeist right now. Everyone talks mm -hmm. about this, the helicopter parenting and the entitled kids and all of these things. And you realize when you're older that your parents sometimes just saying, I'm not helping you. You'll figure it out. Go do it. And maybe you fail mm -hmm. and maybe you get hurt. Right. Um, it's good. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, and I think my my parents were definitely a version of helicopter parents, meaning my mom was <laughs> deathly afraid that I would not go to college. And I have no idea oh. why she thought that, because that was never going to be my personality. Right. Um, and she definitely overstepped her bounds many a time. And mm -hmm. she became like a, like an actual story. People <laughs> told stories about her a, couple, a few times. I love um, it. Uh, oh, my gosh. Like she, she signed the scholarship acceptance letter. 
Okay. Because I got a scholarship to Texas A&M, and I was trying to decide, you know, am I going to go there or am I going to go someplace else? Oh, my goodness. And so she just signed it and sent it off and then didn't tell me. So then I was like, okay, I guess I'll go to Texas A&M. She's like, great. You have a scholarship. Yeah. You know, I knew I had one. She's like, oh, we already, <laughs> paperwork's already done. Oh, and I'm my like, goodness. So that's not what we do. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm like, an adult. That's not, that's yeah. not how this works. It's not my signature. Um, so, yeah. But she knew education was important, and yeah. I think that she was afraid that I would just think my way right on out of it or, or, or be sure. indecisive in that way. Well, some of that may have come from you being a very sort of um, opinionated child, yeah. an outspoken child, and thinking this girl is going to do whatever I don't want her to do. Right. Yeah. Right? Not, there was like, some truth to that. My, I was also <laughs> yeah. an only child, and my father pushed for education because he wasn't. He, mm-hmm. gra- he barely graduated high school, and he made his right. living as a musician. And that's a hard road yes. to tow, right? Mm-hmm. It's not an easy path. And I think he saw in me from a young age the creativity. I was really into music and dancing and writing. And I think he worried that it would be easy for me to say, well, my dad did it, so I don't have to go to college. I can." And so he went the opposite route, too, where he talked about it a lot. Now, he would never sign something or do that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But it was always a conversation around, you're going to get educated. Like, don't do anything else before you finish college. That's so important. And so there was a part of me that just never thought there was another option but to go to college right right out of high school. Right. I think one thing that I noticed, so I mentioned how I thought even in kindergarten, oh, I'm going to be a doctor or a lawyer. But when I started volunteering, particularly in high school, I met kids who'd never had anybody ask them that question or like, what are you going to be when you grow up? And so I realized, you know, how important it was for somebody. I got asked that all the time. You know, uh, just, you know, what are you thinking about? Are you going to do this? And my mom told me uh, when I was little that my – my um, birthday present for my 18th birthday was going to be a set of luggage. You, you know? get the heck out. <laughs> yeah, you got to go. Go see the world. Yeah, yeah. you got to go. You got to go to college. You got to do something. You're not going to be sitting around here doing X, Y, or Z. But that's such a good point because if you think about it, it, it you are your circumstances. And mm-hmm. so there are kids who are growing up in a world in which no one around them makes the assumption or has that confidence that right. they're going to do it. Right. It doesn't mean they don't think they can, but it's not part of the conversation. No. What do you want to be when you grow up or where are you going to no. college? Right. And that's definitely, I think, my mom's influence. My mom has a master's degree yeah but my dad um, didn't graduate from high school he got a GED he was drafted into Vietnam yeah Um, and as a detective he realized he had lots of competencies and skills that other people didn't have so he took lots of courses that Mm -hmm. would have given him the equivalent of a a bachelor's degree sure but um, I think it was always a source of insecurity for him in some ways but at the same time, he knew he was quite capable, but he recognized yeah. how other people see you as very different yeah. if you have um, the credentials, whether yeah. you are actually capable or not. Right. I think my dad had a little bit of that, too. Like, no mm-hmm. college degree. It doesn't matter if you're going to be a rock star. Right. Which he was on the verge of. You know, his mm-hmm. band was succeeding, and they were about to go huge, and then he got sick. Right. And then it was like, wow, I've got nothing really to fall back on except my skills right. as a musician. And he figured that out, and he owned successful businesses, and he did all those things. Again, very self-motivated, very smart. Um, but I think there was always that, you know, you've got to have that degree. Right. to fall back on no matter what you got to have something in your pocket right and my and my parents were definitely that way um, but I think that uh, so they depending on who you ask there's basically two or three generations between me and my parents and they grew up in very agrarian uh, mm-hmm. circumstances so I'm yeah. the first generation not to grow up on a farm yeah and, and for them uh, it was you know subsist- subsistence farming yep. and and poverty so they had like a phobia uh, sure. associated with being in any way indigent or or poor and so to them 
having an education meant that I would never have to suffer in that way. Right, which is how we think about, right. I mean, I'm a mother and my fears for my boys are all things that I look back on and wish that I had done differently. Right. I don't worry about them being poor necessarily because I've never really experienced being poor. Right. But I do worry about them making choices that take them places that maybe they might regret or right. maybe they do something and go, oh, I wish I had been a little better about that. Right. So I got tons of support when I said I wanted to be a lawyer. I was yeah. Like, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Of course you do. Yes. Right. And I knew before I even went to undergrad that this, you know, I'm going to go to graduate school. And mm-hmm. so actually that was part of the deal. Okay. So uh, I did not want to go to school in my hometown. I don't have that oh. personality. Yeah, yeah. I didn't um, either. I, you know, like, <laughs> I want to get the hell out. Yeah, I'm like, no, nah, I need it. What? No. Uh, and yeah. especially since um, growing up in a I, – I grew up in the same house my entire life. Mm. And I actually went to college with somebody who we were born on the same day in the same hospital. What? Um, we didn't attend all the same schools together, but like high school, co- you know, there were several people who um, also graduated from the same high schools that I did or lived in the same town who also went to Texas A&M. And so we kind of had this feeling of like – it's, we gotta stop looking at each other. Yeah. Like we gotta meet more people. We gotta yeah. get out. We gotta do other things. Sure. But I had uh, two full scholarships to Texas A and M, mm-hmm. and so that meant that um, basically my parents never had to write a check. Right. Uh, and, and so the idea that I would go to a private school that they would have to pay for right. was just hilarious to, to them. Yeah. It just was like I don't. You're saying words that doesn't make any sense. You know. Me. And this is another great message for young people who mm-hmm. might be listening. Um, I made the opposite mistake. Mm-hmm. So I was, uh, you know, accepted to my first choice private university plus mm-hmm. a bunch of SUNYs, which are state universities of New York. They're yes. a lot cheaper. The great schools. Mm -hmm. But I chose the private school because I had this dream. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I knew exactly where I was going to go. It all went to crap. Mm -hmm. You know, it changed. But um, I'm still paying that debt. I mean, here I am in my 40s with kids and a good job. And I'm still, I will still, I will be paying that debt until I die. Yeah. Um, And my parents helped and I had some scholarships. But mostly it was taking out loans because we Mm -hmm. were not wealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think back on that. I'm like, why was I so averse to going to a state school or to going to community college for Mm -hmm. two years and working my way to the big university? Mm -hmm. Um, Instead, I accrued a bunch of debt. (laughs) I had got a great education, but I accrued a bunch of debt Right. in addition. (laughs) I think I would have chosen to go to a private school and I would have had different opportunities. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, like, for example, Texas A&M is a huge school. Mm -hmm. Um, I could figure out how to make it work because I'm not – even though I have introverted tendencies, I'm not super introverted. So I had classes right. that had 500 people, mm-hmm. but I still, um, again, my mom had been to college, right? And my mom has this personality that is, I like to describe her as somebody who would have been a partner in a law firm if she was not, if she didn't graduate from high school in 1959 and had oh. ever attended integrated schools. Like she's uh-huh. not a super, like, she's not June Cleaver. Right. You know, she bought me the book, Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office. Right. So she basically insisted that in every class that I was in, you know, sit near the front and go introduce yourself to the professor. Absolutely. And and so, you know, and if I didn't do it, she was 2.3 miles away. And she did actually call a couple of my professors, not not to check up on me in that way, but yeah, she she had no problem coming up on campus. Sure. So, I mean, I, I was able to get to know professors. I wasn't somebody who was easily left behind in a crowd that way. But I do think I might have benefited from a smaller environment. That said, um, I did know that I would go to graduate school. And so the deal was, okay, go to the state school, let it be free because then you can go wherever you want to for graduate school. Yeah. And so my thought process for grad school and and kind of 
um, given the, in some ways, a sacrifice mm -hmm. that I made for undergrad was, uh, I'm going to go wherever I want, and we're not going to have a conversation about it. Basically, like, my mom right. and dad were not allowed any commentary, which mm. for them, they're super opinionated. Yep. It literally killed them to <laughs> not be able to say a yeah. word. But that yeah. was the deal. That was and the I, deal. And I was like, this is what we're doing, right? And, yeah. you know, yeah. four years later, um, I uh, had the choice to go to the University of Texas, which is a great school. Sure. Um, a great law school, but I was convinced that I just wanted to get out of Dodge, and mm -hmm. I and I didn't really, um, I, I didn't care about so much about anything else. I wanted sure. a different experience, and so which is valid. Yeah, yeah. And I took a map, mm -hmm. and I said to myself, okay, well, if I'm going to leave the state and if I'm going to pay for school, then I'm going to not go to a school that's not ranked as high as the public school that's sure. in my state. Sure. So I literally just applied to almost all of the schools that were ranked higher than the University of Texas, which was number 15 at the time. Okay. And so um, uh, I then said, okay, I got into some of these schools. That's great. I'm just going to pick the one that's the most different and sure. the furthest away. Okay. Like I literally just took a yeah. map and said, all right. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, I, I, um, How far can I go and yeah. be at a really good school? Right. And I thought, well, I've never lived in a big city. Yeah. I really was a bumpkin in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and I don't have any shame about that, but no, you don't, you yeah. just can't know what you don't know. So right. like, I remember the times that I saw skyscrapers for the first time. Right. Or like tried to have to, to drive in Houston was oh, just, yeah. Um, yeah, really nerve wracking. So I chose to go to New York City. Yeah. And um, I was choosing between Columbia and NYU. Mm -hmm. And I chose Columbia because they had three years of guaranteed housing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's huge. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Oh, my gosh. That's all I need to know. For New York <laughs> you know? City, that's all that matters. You yeah. have a place to sleep. <laughs> yeah. When I applied to, to law school, um, I hadn't been north of Maryland. Mm. I mean, I'm lucky in that my parents uh, believed in vacation, so I traveled. We, we yeah. went places. Mm-hmm but I'd never been north of Maryland. Wow. Um, the first time I went to New York City was um, I went on an admitted student state trip. Okay. And I only did that because I had a friend who was kind of like the superstar on campus. Uh -huh. And she told me that um, schools wanted us so badly that we could ask for whatever we wanted to. Sure. And she said, you don't have to pay that, that application fee if you don't want to. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I'm going to pay it. Yeah. And she said, you don't have to pay to visit the school. They'll pay for you to visit the school. Like, yeah. it's, and I didn't have any idea mm -hmm. that that was the case. Right. And so um, I just thought, well, we'll just see if she's right. So I just asked the, admit, the dean yeah. of admissions. Yeah well, can I get some help paying for my ticket sure. to New York City? And she was like, sure. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> now, now I have to go to New York City. Now I have to right. visit. Uh, there wasn't somebody to pick me up at the airport, right? Like the so only, you're learning it as you go. Right. You're like um, dumped out in the middle of the city, and you got to get to where you got to go. Right. And the yeah. only reason I knew where to go was because the person who, with whom I was staying mm -hmm. lived on the street where the Seinfeld Diner oh, yeah. was. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And so she yeah. said, tell them <laughs> you want to go, go to this place. Because they know all the street. landmarks. Yeah. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. That's literally, I don't know how I would have figured it out yeah. any other way. Yeah, yeah. And even when I got there, um, I, like I said, I had housing. I packed up my stuff. I told my parents I didn't want their help. Yeah. Um, so I went by myself, and um, I had like an air mattress and some <laughs> uh, air pillows. Yeah. 
And I went to the housing office to get my key, and the person there said, okay, well, here's how you're going to get to the place. You're going to go uptown, and you're going to go blah, blah, blah. And, and I like, literally was like, yeah, what the hell does that mean? So, yeah. uptown. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> and he just said, yeah. Okay. I get off in 10 minutes. I'll just yeah, drive you up I'll there. And I was like, you. okay, great. Thank, Thank you. Yeah. Because yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I hadn't been on a subway. Yeah. Um, it was difficult, but and it was an adventure. Yeah. And it was definitely an experience being around people who had mostly attended Ivy League schools. Yeah. Because I didn't have an identity that was dependent upon what school I went to. Sure. And I was thankful for that, mm-hmm. to have had that experience in undergrad, right. and then to have something to compare it to right. in, in law school, mainly because my world didn't end because of uh, maybe I wasn't the best in yeah. law school, or yeah. you know, I knew people who were perfectly happy being, you know, working their nine to five jobs, mm-hmm. um, yeah. who were married but had 2.2 kids. There's nothing wrong with that right. at the end of the day. Right. You don't have to be at the best place in the best firm doing the most prestigious job. Yeah. And so that didn't really drive me, yeah. but I saw tons of people for whom that was true and yeah. who were just ultimately miserable at the end of the day. Which brings us to this next question I had for you because we had talked earlier yep. about um, what it was that actually pushed you from law because you did complete your law degree and you went off and you got a really good job. And yes. we talked a little bit and you know you had a high powered job. I mean, you were in DC and you were running amongst the people, mm-hmm. like the high up people, Yes, but you made a decision to leave that behind and be get a right. PhD in psychology. So I'm, I want you to talk a little bit about what it was. And I'll, I remember you saying to me, the line you said to me was that you asked yourself, what do I want my day to look like? Right. So I want you to talk a little bit about that because I think it's such a beautiful message. Right. So um, I, uh, you know, left law school. I kind of did the things that in some ways you would do if you wanted to be a partner at a big law firm. Sure. Um, so I clerked for a federal judge, mm-hmm. and then I worked for a law firm in D.C. I was still a peon because I was an associate, but okay. still I worked at a law firm that it was prestigious mm-hmm. and where I got paid a lot mm-hmm. and where if I had been able to conform, <laughs> let's I'll put it that way, okay. if I had been able to conform, then I could have had a job where I easily would have made a million dollars a year or yeah, more. Yeah, right. But... I never thought that that should be my goal. I never thought right. that money should be the thing that, that gets me to wake up in the, in the day. Right. And what I realized um, sitting at my desk at the law firm was that I didn't really want to go to work in the morning. Mm. I was waiting for the clock to, to kind of tick so I could go home. Right. And um, I didn't really get any joy um, working with the people with whom I was working because they were also miserable. But for right. them... It was like, you know, this sucks, see you tomorrow. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do this every day. And um, there were things that I liked about it, but I felt that for most other people, it was the status and the prestige and the money Mm -hmm. that was enough for them to suffer, and I didn't feel that way. Right. Um, And looking back on it, I recognize that was a privilege. I mean, that's also sort of my personality, meaning I'm willing to take the risk that I'm wrong if it means that I can try something that I think may be a better fit for me. That is a really important statement that you just made. It's one of the things that I'm really big on is talking about risk because Mm -hmm. I think that 
so many of us, especially now, yes. um, younger people, it's very much about how am I going to be able to sustain myself, to make yes. good money, to have – maybe because a lot of them have grown up through a depression, they mm-hmm. sort of understand what the stakes are if you can't take care of yourself. Right. But also that it seems the right thing to do, to get mm-hmm. a good job where you make a lot of money. And there's – like you say, there's rank and status and prestige that goes along with that, and you get to buy all the stuff that you want and, and right. all of those things. But there is something beautiful about taking a risk on something that – you are passionate about and mm-hmm. not really knowing where it's going to take you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I realized, okay, well, how I thought to myself kind of how did I get here? Because yeah. I understood that I worked really hard to be sitting at that desk to be miserable. Right? You know what I mean? Oh my so, gosh. What so, a realization. Like I have yeah. worked my ass off and I'm sitting at this desk watching the clock tick. Yeah. Is this really where I want to be? Right. And so I just thought, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. Like how did I, how exactly did I get here? And I yeah. tried like um, the what color is my your parachute? Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I even do you I take like those tests, right? Yeah, it tells you what are your aptitudes. And, and I went your... to a career counselor. Right. And the problem for a lot of people, myself included, is it's aptitude is not the issue. Right. So if I wanted to do it, sure, there were tons of things I could do. It was more that I really hadn't figured out what my interests were, mm-hmm. or what my I hadn't even really thought about what I was necessarily really good at. Yeah. And, or what skills that I wanted to use. Sure. And so when I started thinking about that, I had to start thinking, okay, what are the things that I like about this job? What are the things that I don't like about this job? Mm-hmm. And then that's where I got to that question of, okay, what do I want my day to look like? Because yeah. I realized that's a way of, of simply putting, do I want to be in a place with air conditioning or not? Sure, you know, do sure. I want to be in a place that, um, uh, like I, for example, really like project-based work. Okay. Because I like being able to tackle something. I like being able to kind of uh, have to jump into something kind of deeply and then be able to jump out of it or sure. working on multiple different things at the same time. Okay. And because I grew up in a college town, I had some experiences where I got to get some exposure. Like uh, I worked, I volunteered with um, this organization that was for like female scientists. They were trying to get more girls in STEM. And sure. so I um, had a job for the summer when I was like 13. Mm-hmm. I worked at the forestry science lab at Texas A&M. And my job, they were they were genetically engineering loblolly pine trees. Right. <laughs> and um, my job was to pick seeds out of pine cones I for the entire it. summer. I love it. And it was just to expose me to, it was basically an all-female lab for the yeah. most part. Yeah, yeah. And it was great, and I was like, this is not for me. Because sure. uh, their experiments and their projects took 10 years to figure oh, out wow. whether they were right. successful or not. you got to grow trees. That right. takes a while. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. no. No, no. <laughs> I'm not in it for 10 years no, no, just no, no, to no, see no. a tree. Mm-mm, yeah. No, okay. no, I need an answer far far quick, more quickly than that. That's valuable information to have about yourself. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think part of what helped me was being able to check myself. Do I like this? Yeah. Do I not like this? Here are the things. What kind of person am I at the end of the day? Right. Um, and, I, and I think I could – for example, you asked, like, how was I kind of in some ways self-possessed about what I will do and what I won't do? Sure. So, like, I thought to myself with my dad's job, um, being a police officer, mm-hmm. am I the kind of person who runs towards a fight or away from it? Nope. Ooh. I'm very consciously the person who is going to hear about it later on Twitter. I'm yeah. fine with that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm not the person who wants to know so badly that I'm going to yes. go run into danger. Right. Um, and I... I think that that recognition and being able to be okay with it at the end of the day was super right. helpful. So when I thought about, well, how do I want to spend my day? What's important to me? I mm-hmm. had to acknowledge some things about myself that maybe are not um, 
not uh, angelic. Like, right. in some ways, I do care about status. I do right. care about prestige. Sure, right? sure. So I have to acknowledge that about myself and then mm-hmm. find something that maybe that's not the number one thing about that job, but that still that's present. There's something there. Right. Um, yeah. And that's, again, yeah. it's such a good thing for all of us to really – be okay with. Mm -hmm. I've gone through this too where you just, you know, some of what drove me to the PhD, most of it was curiosity and being very interested in the geology and all of those things. There was also a part of me that felt like, okay, get an education. This was a message I heard over and over where you can't really do much more than getting a PhD. Mm -hmm. So um, once I go that high, no one can look at me and say, you're not educated. Right. Right. And there's something about that that makes you feel accomplished. Um, but at the end of the day, you're not going to survive as a scientist or a lawyer or no. whatever it is if you're not curious about and interested in what it is that you're doing. There has to be an aspect of yes. that or you're going to go crazy. But I was also told, like a lot of people, um, that I ne- school was about developing skills, that I needed right. to pick a major or to do something that mm-hmm. was going to translate, obviously translate to a job when I got out. Right. So, but for law school, I knew I was going to graduate school. It doesn't really matter what your major is. Right. But for my parents, it was really important. Okay, yeah. but you need to have a skill. So I majored sure. in marketing. Sure. Right. But when it came to trying to figure out, you know, how it is I got to this point that I wasn't happy or mm-hmm. what did I want to do next, right. I realized that I didn't really even spend a lot of time thinking about what is it that I would do even if somebody didn't really pay me. Yeah. Like, what what is it that I really like well enough that it wouldn't really matter mm-hmm. if I made a six-figure salary or not? Right. That I thought, okay, if I won the lottery, what would I do? And it would be I would get a Ph.D. at right. the end of the day. Okay. Well, so there then you I go. Just, yeah. <laughs> and so then I thought, well, okay, I'm just not going to wait for that. You yeah. know? And, right. um, uh, and then when it came to figuring out what kind of Ph.D. I wanted, I mean, a lot of that was a crapshoot in really? some ways. Yeah. I thought – I really only had one psychology course in undergrad, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't major in psychology, and I didn't get a PhD in psychology, and I didn't even think about it partially at that time because the professor, I was in a class of about 130 or 40 people, mm-hmm. and the professor starts talking about IQ tests, and he says, black and Hispanic students have lower IQs oh my goodness. as compared with white students, and I was just like, did, did you stand hold up and leave? Hold on. <laughs> you know, no, I didn't have that person. I, I was more uh, when I if I if and when I hear something like that, I'm usually so shocked by it yeah. that I think, well, did that happen? And and at the time, I had the highest grade in the class. Right. So I'm sitting there going, so where's the qualifier? Are people even listening to the qualifier? Yeah. Like, um, and so I was like, oh, okay, well, no, this is not this is not where I need to be <laughs> in terms oh of my that. Gosh. But. Um, I knew that I always really liked family law in mm-hmm. terms of thinking about academia. I, I realized that what I, the skills that I wanted to use were things like I like the idea of sharing things with people that really interest me, mm-hmm. and I like the idea of being a mentor to some people in some ways. Yeah. I think um, I, I I don't necessarily have the time to do it in the way that I would want, but in some in some ways I I don't mind helping other people. Mm-hmm. This, it comes back, too, to your yeah. your initial feelings in that courthouse that you were drawn to the human problems, yes. what people were experiencing, mm-hmm. which is psychology and right. sociology, um, even more than the law that was happening there right. in that building. Right. So yeah. I looked at psychology and sociology programs. Yes. And um, I just, you know, without having much experience, what ended up being the deciding factor for me was being able to work with an advisor who had previously had more than one lawyer who worked in 
his program. Okay. So I call us kind of reformed lawyers, people who realize <laughs> it's not for me. You yeah. Need to do something else. Right. And uh, my advisor at the University of Virginia was somebody who had had at least 10 people previous to me mm-hmm. who had decided this was not the career for them and who changed and who um, worked in psychology in his lab. So I felt like what I needed more than anything was for somebody to be able to meet me where I was. Sure. They understood a little bit about you and where you were coming from. Right, because I was not going to be, and I was not, the typical PhD student, meaning I had never worked in a lab. Right. And I um, was not a psychology major in undergrad, and I couldn't articulate, um, oh, here's the research product that I'm going to work on the day I get there. Right. Having worked in a law firm in D.C. and having gone to Columbia in some ways didn't help me because what I wanted was to try to get exposure, for example, to um, research. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll just apply to be like a research assistant Mm -hmm. for somebody for a a temporary amount of time Mm -hmm. or I'll just, you know, volunteer to work on somebody's projects. And I was told to my face, basically, that people didn't feel like they could tell me what to do. You know, or, or that they wouldn't hire, they, what they wanted was, you know, a 20-year-old college student. Oh, because you were older and you had experience yes. and you were a woman and you were a career woman. And yes. so they're looking at you going, well, she's not going to be a lackey. Yeah, yeah, right. Even though I said, well, what I want is the experience. Right. Um, I, you know, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes in order to get the experience. I'm yeah. not somebody who's going to be so precious that I'm going to say, well, that's not my job. But you know what's scary about that? Mm. It brings up another issue, which is there is a culture in academia. It still exists in all sorts of fields, right? Mm -hmm. Not just psychology, but almost any field that um, graduate students and undergraduates are often looked at as free to cheap labor. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, you know, the, we forget that these people are here for more than just to help you in your lab or to help you with your research. This is their life. They're they're constructing their future. And so this idea that, um, well, I wouldn't be able to boss you around. Well, but what about working with me? What about guiding me? What about facilitating my experience and learning how to do research? Isn't that valuable? But at the end of the day, maybe it's not. Like to some people, I think the value is these students are going to churn out data that can then be used to further the research right. program. And well, that's I, a little scary. Yeah, but I also think as a career changer, what I find – and, and, and not just as a career changer, but as somebody who genuinely works between two fields, is that people lack imagination for something that doesn't follow lockstep the way that they did it. Okay. So that's also true when it comes to getting experience, meaning, well, I was an undergraduate. I worked in this lab. This is what I did. Then I went to get this degree. Then mm-hmm. I came. So, so there's no You have a model that, for how it works. Right. There's, yeah. This is the model. This is what. This is how this is done. Right. And so, what do you mean you, you're not doing it that way? It had no. Yeah. It was not commentary on whether I was going to be a good scientist or not. It had nothing to do with that. Right. It had to do with whether they were willing to take a chance on somebody who didn't do it their way. Exactly. And I felt, uh, and I still feel a lot of times that that is often a, a threat to some people sure. because maybe there would have been a, an easier way or a different way, but sure. that's not the way that I did it. Um, you right. know. I probably suffered in the way that I did it, and so I want the people who yes. can do it my way. There is some of that, too, like the paying your dues yes. aspect, and in, in I see that a lot, too, in academia. Yes. Well, I had to go through this as a grad student. You will, too. Right, and I was definitely naive. It was um, humbling, but also I just didn't care yeah. to have to go from an apartment in D.C. to I lived in a dorm at the LSC. Yeah. <laughs> didn't care. And how old are you now when this is happening, uh, roughly? 30. 
Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, but this I was not the only. So the program that I was <laughs> at the LSC, I was lucky because I wasn't the oldest person, and there were other people who were my age. Yeah. Um, and where there was a range of people, so I didn't yeah. have to feel like, oh, my God, you know. I'm the only person who's doing this. Yeah. But at the same time, no one could really tell me anything different. So I, sure. I didn't get a ton of support for when right. I quit my job because for right. most of my um, family and even some of my friends, but particularly my family, I think that I'm privileged in that that I have the luxury of being able to think about what it is that I want to do, that I'm not so right. focused on food, clothing, and shelter that yes. I have the ability to think, okay, what's going to actually bring me some joy and my parents didn't really have that yes. and most of my um family like you like a job because it pays you yes so th- and we should yeah. acknowledge that that this yeah. is when we have this conversation we're not really recognizing that there are some people for whom this yes. would never be a way to live your life because Absolutely. it is about basic survival yes and I acknowledge that and I'm the same way I mean yeah. my family wasn't wealthy but I had the support that I needed to make the choice to go to college and study what I wanted to study. Yes. Um, and I know that that's a very rare and wonderful, wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. I, and I think you acknowledge that as well. Yes. Um, but we shouldn't, I, d- I also don't think that that we should have to apologize for being passionate about oh, something no. and choosing to do that and then doing it well and working hard. I yes. mean, if you're going to make a decision to go get a PhD and you do it right and you mm-hmm. do it well and you put that work to good use, right? then I don't think you should have to apologize for that. No, not yeah. at all. Yeah, but so... You know, most of my peers, though, were um, making lots of money and uh, focused on that. And um, not all, but all, most of my friends had Ivy League degrees as well. Right. And I think that for somebody who has never experienced, I'm going to call it a lifestyle, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting because I think you always think, well, if I make this sort of money, what I'll do is I'll live at a certain level and I'll save a lot mm-hmm. so that I can then quit my job and do whatever I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I think what people don't realize and what was kind of more difficult for me is that it isn't really just about the dollar amount. It's yeah. about the lifestyle. Yeah. It's about the car that you drive. It's mm-hmm. about the the place where you live. There are yeah. all these things that come along with uh let's just say the job in some ways but for me I still didn't care that I had to say goodbye to all that stuff it wasn't important enough for me Mm -hmm. but for my friends some of them who are still working as attorneys to this day that I think was part of the part that was not worth um, saying goodbye to that it would be really hard for them not to live in the place where they want to live or the the lifestyle that they want to live in to Mm -hmm. not drive a, a really nice car sure and um, I was naive enough to think that I, I didn't realize it would be as hard as it was financially. Sure. But I also never thought that I was promising to be poor by getting a PhD. Right. Um, right. So I had hope. You knew. I mean, you in so, on some level, you knew that you would succeed in some way. You would make it work somehow. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I certainly there certainly were no guarantees. Right. And I, and I figured out, oh, this is way harder than I thought it was. Yeah. But I still was thinking. Uh, I do genuinely believe that you should get some level of joy with yes. how you spend your time. Yes, which goes and back to your, what do I want my day to look like? Right. Yeah. I think that, and I also think that um, one way in which I'm different from some of my friends is that I think when I was younger, I thought that I would have a point in time where I would make a big decision that would then change the trajectory of my life. Right. That I would 
decide one day, oh, you know, I, I want to make this right turn instead of this left turn. And yeah. It would just be like one static moment in time where I would change. Mm-hmm. But what I realized was that it wasn't. It was all of these little decisions that I make every day yeah. that lead up to a big decision. So like sure. how I spend my time every day is what it's going to look like. It's That's not going right. to be that I'm going to decide in a year from now, okay, yes. this is what I want to do. It's if right. I'm spending my time, if I'm spending eight hours of my day or 10 hours or 12 hours yes. of my day working at this law firm, then that must be what I care about. And if yeah. it isn't, I need to do something else, essentially. Yeah, and you were saying when you think about what do you want your day to look like mm-hmm. and you say, oh, do you, I want to be in air conditioning? Do I want – that was part two for me with geology. What drew me to it initially was seeing people making their living mm-hmm. outdoors a lot of the time right. and going – I wouldn't mind spending some time outdoors and getting paid for that. Yeah. So for some people, it might be, I don't want to be tied to a desk. Yes. That's what I want my day to look like, is that I don't want to be tied to a desk. Yeah. So you're not going to choose a, a career path or a job, in which you, or you right. will be miserable. Right. And for others, it might be, I really want to travel all the time. And some people might say, I don't want to travel. I want to be home yes. all the time with my family and not have to get on an airplane for work. Right. Those are important things that I think, not enough people think about when they choose yes. a career path. They don't think about all those other little pieces. Right. right. Or or they need to be thinking about, okay, well, what I really want or what's going to make me feel like my life is worth living was the kids that I raise sure. or the relationship that I have. Well, you right. can't be saying that and then spending 90 hours a week at a job. Like those right. two things are not – They don't go together. They, those are not compatible. It's, it's not that you difficult. can't um, work and have a family. It's not even that. No, it's, right. I'm just saying that how you spend your time is – is obviously related to what you value. And you can't you yeah. shouldn't pretend any different. Another thing that you said to me in our earlier conversation was mm-hmm. you looked at me, we were talking about people making these decisions. Yeah. Sometimes they're small, sometimes they're big. Mm-hmm. And you said to me, you gotta just pick something. Yes. Like you're never gonna know right. which path is the perfect path for you. It's very rare for someone to know from a young age, yes. I was born to be a this and that's what they are. And so at the end of the day, oh my gosh, I'm stressing about is it psychology or sociology? Is it childhood development? Is it family you know, studies? Is it, mm-hmm. okay, pick something. And guess what? It doesn't mean that for the rest of your life that's all you're ever going to do. Right. It means you complete your degree and maybe in that process you discover that you love this aspect of it and yes. that's where you go next. Right. There's no reason. There's a, I think there's a real fear yes. that people have of I pick something and I'm locked into it forever. Yes. And um, I mean, I tell students this all the time. You can get a geology undergrad degree. Yes. That does not mean you have to make your living as a geologist. You right. might decide you want to go to grad school for something else. You've got a STEM degree. That's right. huge in this day and age. Right. Um, you're right. going to get into a, a graduate program. If you do well in a STEM program, mm-hmm. you will get into a graduate program pretty much of your choice. Yes. It, there's very few things that you have to have the undergrad credentials in that field to get into it. Yes, I mean, even doctors, true. people go to medical school with English degrees. Yes. So yeah. I love that when you said that, you know, just pick something and go with it because sometimes you pick something that you wouldn't have thought you would pick and you go somewhere really amazing. Yes. Yeah. And I think um, what drove me was really trying to think about, again, how I ended up in this place where I worked really hard to get someplace that I didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. And I thought what I discovered was essentially that, you know, Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's taking a risk. Mm-hmm. But I can accept the consequences so long as I know why I made that decision. Sure. That I made the decision using the best information that I had at the time. So even right. if it was a wrong turn, I know I did right. this because what I wanted was A, B, and C. And you're going to learn something. Yes. Even if it's a wrong turn or a U-turn mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it, um, you're going to learn something. 
Yeah. And it might end up putting you on a different path that you never imagined. Right. Which I love. I yes. think that's amazing. Yeah. And I, I don't think that there are many things that I didn't like about what I had the opportunity to do with my PhD program, but there were yeah. definitely some things that I was surprised oh, sure. that I really was good at and that I really liked. I had the least amount of experience in psychology and anybody else in my cohort. Yeah. And I didn't really know much at all about statistics. Okay. And in the program that I was in, we started on day one using R, which is a coding language essentially, which requires you to code and be able to do your statistics using your own code. It's okay. not a point and click sure. situation. Sure, sure. Turns out <laughs> I'm good at it. Wow. And I really like it. Yeah. And I would have never known that right. in a million years. And it turns out I also have the personality of the people who are good at it. Meaning um, they pick people based upon people who kind of like puzzles, who, who will will work till the death basically to figure something out yes. who are very interested in yes. oh wow I figured this out it's great that yeah. kind of thing and I ha- I would have no way of knowing that um, if I hadn't tried right basically. and that actually lends itself to science as well being mm-hmm. a problem solver and someone yes. who likes to figure out puzzles I do want to get into a little bit of what you do now what mm-hmm. your research focuses on because I thought it was um it's so timely. We had yes. this discussion about how you look into or you study and research the ways in which colleges and universities deal with um, sexual assault allegations. Yes. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit about what that work is that you do and maybe if there's anything you're learning from that work that's really interesting. All the time. All the time. Okay, which <laughs> is the beauty of science, right? Yes. We're always learning something. Um, there are always twists and turns. Yeah. I think that... Um, Another benefit I had of working with the advisor that I did was that he was towards the end of his career, mm-hmm. and the number of things and the number of directions that he took his career in was not small. So there were no what boundaries. A great example. Yeah. yeah, there were no boundaries. Right. You could literally do whatever you wanted, and I love so that. yeah. Um, what got me thinking about sexual misconduct and how universities um, handled it was essentially a situation that I was in where I had a friend who had been the victim of a sexual assault, and she was trying to decide whether she was going to report or not to the police. Mm -hmm. And um, because I was basically the only person with a law degree in the psychology building, she just thought it might be good to ask me. Mm -hmm. And I talked to friends, but then it got me to thinking about, oh, well, what happens on campus? Because for her and like a lot of other people, the issue isn't necessarily that the university has the power to punish the person who is the perpetrator, or even that they want the person to be punished. It's well, I can't get this consignment, assignment completed, so what am I going to do? I need to tell somebody because I have responsibilities. Right. I have things that I have to do. I have to be in this class. I have to, to stay in this dorm. But that's going to be really hard for me yeah. based upon my experience. Okay, I never thought about this, but when this happens to you, mm-hmm. you're dealing with the emotional trauma, yes. obviously, maybe physical trauma, whatever it is. Yes. You don't even think about the fact that on a campus – things don't stop for you. And no. so you've got maybe six faculty, six professors who are expecting exactly. you to show up, turn in your work, and then you don't. And faculty tend to go to the, like, oh, they're just being lazy. Or right. You have no idea what's going on in that student's life. And yes. that student is not going to come to every professor and no. go, oh, I was assaulted last night. Right. Yes. So, and so we, this was a situation where it's not that she wanted to have to tell people. Right. You know, like, oh, this is what happened to me. It's that but she I had can't, a real reason. Yeah, it was like, she I can't, can't get this done. Right. I just can't. Right. You know, and this is what the issue is. And so right. that got me to thinking, well, how is this handled on university campuses, particularly in a situation where, right. unlike a lot of adults, um, your entire life is on campus. Right. You right. live there. When you, you live eat there. there. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. um, 
that sort of thing. And so this was prior to... So you can't even escape it. No. I mean, no, no. matter what, everywhere yes. you go, you're at the scene of the crime. Right. You, Your whole life is yes. in this little micro bubble. Yes. Where this thing happened to you. Right. The psychology of that in itself has yes. to be really interesting. Yes. Yeah. And so um, it got me to think about, well, what happens on campus? Like, what would happen if she reported it here on campus or what would happen? And this was actually before the Rolling Stone. I was at UVA, but this was before the Rolling Stone article came out. So this was actually before people were really talking and having this conversation. Okay. And I took a look at the um, code of conduct. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about take sexual misconduct on campus, yeah. Uh, the student code of contact conduct is essentially a contract between the university and the students for how they're supposed to behave while they're on campus. Okay, it's like an agreement. Yes, you know we agree that you're gonna we're gonna give you this education, we're gonna give you this dorm, you're gonna be in our space, you're gonna use our stuff, and in exchange, you're gonna comport yourself in a certain way. Right. right? So if you're talking about um, things that happen on campus like plagiarism or any sort of yeah. issue like that, it is a violation of the student code of conduct. You broke yes. the rules and yep. the conditions of being on campus. Yes. And so when I looked at um, how the school handled that, in particular what would happen once you reported, I thought to myself, oh, hell no. Like really? this, is the, this is the real. Really? Uh, and, and I probably would not have that had that reaction but for the fact that I was a lawyer. And what I mean by that is I could look at – this language, yeah. which is contract language, and there are terms of art. There are there are normal words yeah. that have special meaning yeah. in contracts. Yeah. And what I saw that made me think, oh, absolutely not, was that um, people don't necessarily understand or internalize that there is a difference between confidentiality and anonymity. Okay. And what I mean by that is, the school schools generally say we'll keep your allegations confidential. But on a university campus, that can be meaningless because what they're not saying is they're not saying we're not going to investigate. And and so that means they're going to talk to the people involved. They're going to um, try to find out the information that they need. And that means that there are going to be people outside of you who who know know what happens. Exactly. And so that's not anonymity. It's not the case that you are, that everybody is not going to know because then they can't do anything that would require those other people who they talk to. Um, to not tell anybody else, right? Like that, they have no you power can't force over that. them to not talk to other people, right? So right. the word could spread. Exactly. Yeah. And so what I realized is that ultimately you have no control over the process once you report. And moreover, um, once you report, the school almost has an obligation to not keep it silent because if there is a perpetrator on campus, oh gosh, um, they are going to be the people who recognize things like patterns. Yes, that this isn't the first time that this oh. person has done this. Which, in some ways, is important it to is. know. Right but now, you're right it, getting it, rid of that anonymity. Yeah, and yeah. so it it, it it you are almost not the person who matters in that situation. What matters oh is that the university protects itself against future allegations of somebody coming and saying, "Well, you, you knew, knew about this. You knew, right? Yeah. You knew about this," and mm-hmm. so. The system isn't necessarily designed to deal with the trauma of what has happened to this person, but rather to comply with the law, which is really set up to avoid liability in a yes. lot of ways. Yeah. And so what I thought was, okay, there's no way in hell that I would ever want to be subject to this sort of system. Well, what would be something sure. that I would be okay with? What, sure. what would be As something? As a victim, if you were yeah. a victim, yeah. What this happened to me, what would, ma- would, would make me feel like this – was a system or a group of people that I could trust. Yeah. And so what I study essentially are the policies and procedures that might encourage students to have 
trust and confidence in the way in which the university makes decisions Mm -hmm. in sexual misconduct cases. Right, which is so important because we talked about this, Mm -hmm. um, the likelihood of a person reporting Mm -hmm. is going to be tied to how confident they are that the system is going to be for them, is going to support them and be there for them. And we see this not just on college campuses, but there's a reason that most women don't talk about these things that happened to them. And it's not because they're stupid and it's Mm -hmm. not because it didn't happen, but because they don't have confidence that they are going to be believed, that they're going to be supported, and that the perpetrator is going to be held accountable. Right. And even taking a step back and just sort of looking at it, even as from a legal perspective, it's not so much about winning or losing. Right. It's that you you've have already to, lost. Yes. If you've been assaulted, you've yes. already lost. Let's just yes. say that. Right. It's, it's, it's not about winning or losing. It's yeah. that in any sort of decision-making system, what we want is we want to know that the decisions have been made fairly. We want to know that the decisions are made with accurate information and right. without bias. Mm-hmm. And we want to know that the decisions are made with um, or, and that you're going to be treated with dignity and respect. Yes. And so the question is, what kind of policies and procedures can translate to that? You're basically communicating with students how you view them mm-hmm. by how you treat them in this process. Right. And so you need to be able to communicate that no matter what your allegation, no matter whether you are the alleged victim or the perpetrator, that you'll be treated in a certain way and the decision that we have made will be based upon the information that we have and it's the way in which we collected that information and the way in which we used it that Mm -hmm. was fair. So no matter the outcome, it is what it is, essentially. Right, right, right. You got your opportunity to say, to to present your side. Yeah. We collected evidence, but this is ultimately the decision. But there's a, there's a very serious psychological aspect to how that is presented to the potential victim or yes. the, the out, you know, the one who's making the allegations. Mm-hmm. If it is not stated properly or made clear to them in that way, it, it doesn't take much for a victim to feel like they are not being heard and to feel like they're not being believed or supported. This is true, but that translates, I think, to almost any sort of um, legal process or let's just say litigation. So what I mean by that is, as an attorney, I was more or less a general litigator. I did lots of different types of litigation, which meant um, that uh, I wasn't necessarily going to court, but I was helping people who were preparing to go to court. Mm -hmm. And what what was not fun for me about that job is no one is ever happy at the end of the day when you're done. Sure. Um, It's not the case that you're going to spend all of this money and all of this time, and even if you win, that you're going to be like, wow, thanks so much. That just doesn't happen. Sure, Because um, the court system and the legal system is going to be the the system that splits the baby in half. It Mm. isn't going to be the system that's going to uh, come up necessarily with the best solution. It's just going to come up with a solution at the end of the day. Right. And um, we do a really not great job of managing people's expectations as far as that's concerned. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it isn't the case that it's going to be like on TV and you're going to get to do this soliloquy in court where you're going to get to say, here's everything that happened to me, guys. Right. And have them validate you and say, oh, right. my God, you were right. Right. You know, and how right. terrible is this that happened to you? Yeah. That's never going to happen. And that's a good point. Part yeah. of the reason we think that's what happens because that's what we see on television. Yes. Right. So it, it, you could be the victim of sexual misconduct, but you could also just be somebody who had a construction contract. You all, ha- They all kind of have this expectation that they're going to be validated, mm-hmm. that somebody's going to tell them that they were right. right. And, th- and that's almost more important than winning. Right. And that just never happens. But never what's happens. dangerous in this particular area is now we're in a situation where 
not only do you not have control once you report, you don't have control over whether you report. So if somebody becomes uh, aware that sexual misconduct has happened on campus, they are obligated to report it whether the victim wants them to or not. Oh my gosh. And so then when the process happens, and let's say the decision is made, let's say the decision is that there has not been hmm. an instance of sexual misconduct, then you've gone and not validated somebody who was already worried in the first place that what right. happened to her or him was not serious enough. Right. So yes. um, we, don't, we don't have research on that, but the implication is that that could even have a more damaging, um, sure. a, a more damaging effect than uh, people who actually had some sort of agency in yep. the decision to report in the first place. Yeah. And so here at the U of A, is it similar here in terms of how things are written in the language? Like, have you been researching it here? Because you weren't here when you no. made this discovery and made this decision that it was important. So a couple of things. One is, when I first started researching this area, a lot of schools didn't make their student codes of conduct or their policies public. Okay. Um, a good number of schools didn't even have systems set up to handle these cases. Wow. Even though um, Title IX has been around since about 1972, yeah. um, it was only interpreted to cover sexual misconduct or uh, discrimination on the basis of sex was interpreted to include sexual misconduct on campus only relatively recently, not as early as 1972. Yeah. And just tell people what Title IX just briefly is... What so, does it do? So Title IX is federal legislation mm -hmm. that was um, uh, uh, basically uh, intended to prevent discrimination on the basis of sex and education. Okay. And um, Title IX is sort of enforced by the Department of Education. Mm -hmm. And so essentially the penalty if you violate Title IX is that if you are a school that accepts any sort of federal funds, mm -hmm you are potentially risking receiving all of those federal funds and or you will get fined by the federal government. Okay. And so it's uh, obviously public institutions and institutions of higher education depend upon things like student loan money yeah. and, and money from the federal government. Mm -hmm. So it isn't necessarily that they're going to put people in prison or anything like that. It is a money thing. Are you going to be able to function as a school if you don't have any federal funds? But it's a really good way of making sure that schools have something in place to protect people against these types of discriminations. In theory. In theory. And, and, and I say in yeah. theory because what has to happen is there has to be somebody who is paying attention yeah. and there has to be people who report schools who are not in compliance. Mm -hmm. So that really didn't happen until about uh, 2014, 2015. Wow. And so, um, wow. When people started becoming aware of this issue, that's when we see uh, reporters, for example, demanding to have copies of schools' codes of conduct mm -hmm. and, and schools' policies and being turned down. Right. We didn't have information about how many uh, people, how many schools had even found people to be responsible for violating codes of conduct. We didn't know how many, how no many hearings. Yeah. We didn't have any of that information. But once there was a huge light shined on it, people realized it was a problem. Then it part of what has changed is that schools understand and are now obligated, and there's the expectation that I should be able to go on this website, and I should be able to right. see what the policy is. Right. I should be able to have an understanding of what will happen to me mm -hmm. if um, I um, am brought up on charges, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that that's one thing that has changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, But we don't... Uh, uh, part of the issue is also that Title IX covers... Um, mostly public schools, but, you know, private schools as well that accept federal funds. Yeah. But think about how different schools are. Yeah. What I mean by that is most of the time we think about college as a four-year university. Right. right. But it's They're not. not at all. Right. Right. So, or we think about a school that has tens of thousands of people. Right. And it's not. Not. 
Um, so we're also talking about community colleges. Yep. We're also talking about schools that maybe have less than 2,000 people, which is less than my high school, right? Right. They don't all, ha- they don't ha- all have the capacity to behave in the same way sure. when it comes to these issues. And there isn't a Supreme Court decision, for example, that says, here's what you have to do in order to be able to avoid violating the law. Wow. The Supreme Court, for example, has only really said that before you can deprive somebody of um, a, a right in this sort of situation, yeah. you just have to give them some sort of hearing, uh, some sort of notice of the charges against them and some okay. sort of hearing. Okay. But how you interpret notice and yeah. hearing yeah. can, there are a million different ways to do that. Yeah. Right. So a hearing could be on paper. Oh, wow. Notice could be, well, I told you 10 minutes ahead of time. What? Right. So there's not a lot of um, clarity mm-hmm. and there's also a lot of variation. Yeah. And so given that you have a lot of choices, particularly if you're talking about university administration, how is it that you figure out what the best method is? And then how do you evaluate what the best method is? So right. that's what I'm working on because we don't have any real system for thinking about or any real framework for thinking about how is it that we evaluate the effectiveness of a decision-making system in this area? Yeah. What happens or how do we determine whether implementing a policy has been successful or not? That's really tricky to get at. And Mm -hmm. it is so important that there's some sort of consistent national best practices that universities and community colleges and small liberal arts schools and whatever know that this is how you do it and how it works best. And it's very hard when you think about how many institutions there are out there. How do you know? Right. Especially if there's no data on how they're doing it and what the effects yes. are. And so this is where my science background comes in. Because yes. what I think about is, okay, how are you going to measure that? Right. Right. Like, what are the what are the outcomes? What yeah. are you expecting at the end of the day? Yes. And so um, what I am researching and what I am sort of trying to help people understand is that a system can't possibly be effective if nobody uses it. Right. Right. It, yeah. if, if, if no one is willing to take their problems to the system, it can't possibly be effective. Right. So if you're going to evaluate, let's say, school disciplinary procedures, one way of evaluating that could be, well, how do students feel about it? Do mm-hmm. students, are, are students actually willing to report? Yep. Um, are they willing to, be, to voluntarily be witnesses if asked? Right. Because you can't force people to do it all of the no, time. And so are you, are you operating a system that people feel comfortable enough with that even when they don't have to, they're mm-hmm. willing to use it. So you, your work probably requires you to talk to a lot of students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find that students um, in general are forthcoming about these types of things, or are they guarded about this on this subject? Well, so I uh, do have anonymity in the research that I do, at okay. least so far. But also, um, not only do I... Uh, hear their complaints about how the student system currently works. Yeah. What I find is that, um, so we have lots of entities and people that are talking about best practices. Right. And we have lots of lawyers mm-hmm. and people with, you know, decades of experience mm-hmm. saying, here's what I think should happen. But none of those people have actually talked to students and none of those people right. really actually understand what it's like to be a college student on campus right, right now. Right, And to have been through, um, for example, abstinence-only programs when you're in high school oh or trying to, yeah. trying to navigate that space. And so right. um, it, it's a paternalistic view, in my opinion, to say, well, here's what we think should happen right. without asking the people who are most affected by it. Yeah. And so what I am saying essentially is you should really care yeah. what students think. Yes. You should really care about their perceptions because – 
their perceptions drive their willingness to participate in the system. And that should matter to you because without that, Mm -hmm. you can't hold perpetrators responsible for things because you are never going to get the information that you need in order to be able to hold somebody responsible. That's right. And this happens, it's not just in this area, but I mean, I see it in teaching. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, teaching is my thing and I can't tell you how many times you know, faculty sit around in a room and make decisions about how classes should be offered and when they should be offered and where and Mm -hmm. why and without ever having asked a student, you know, what was your experience in this class? What could have, I mean, you know, you get evaluations. They don't mean much because the students don't make comments. They tend Mm -hmm. to just click the little dots and move on. Right. Um, And it really does worry me sometimes. It's like, but the students are the ones having the experience. They're the ones that can tell you at the end of the day, was your class effective? Did I learn anything? Um, and I think we're just so afraid to hear the answers we don't want to hear, which is Absolutely. which is what you're finding too, is students saying they, you know, or students might feel like they don't have confidence in the system, and so they're not going to use the system. Or people don't value their experience, whatever right. it is. So right. one of the things that I learned being a researcher, and sort of one of my first experiences being a researcher was I went from working at a law firm mm-hmm. to working on a project where we were interviewing um, teenagers aged 18 to 18, or 13 to 18 okay. for two hours at a time about their romantic relationships. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I'm not sure I'd ta- want to hear that. <laughs> right. Literally talking to kids about sex. Yeah. You know, so I'm doing document review at a law firm to talking to kids about sex for two hours at a time. Wow. And um, all of us in this lab were basically under 31. Yeah. And, you know, we're thinking we're close enough to be able to understand how it is that they're interacting with each other in romantic relationships. And we very quickly quickly figured out, oh, hell no. We don't, we don't know, know what's, what's going, going on. on. Yeah. We, you know, there were conversations where um, oh there was actually gosh. a New York Times article that came out talking about this a little bit um, because uh, we used to be focused on teen pregnancy yeah. and, and avoiding um, people having sex. And the current adolescent experience is just so different. Yeah. They are having far less sex than people uh, who are in their, you know, 30s and mm-hmm. 40s right now. Mm-hmm. They are the teen pregnancy rates are very much down. Even even in the 90s, it was not uncommon. We're so focused on uh, someone losing their virginity. Yeah. Most people don't realize that it wasn't actually uncommon for somebody to have sex at an early age and then not have sex for a long, for a time, long time afterwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Um, just acknowledging that I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. Like right. I, I can't, I can't, I can't describe this person's experience without talking to them first. That's right. And um, one of the things that we that made that really hit home for me was one of the questions that we had was, "How long did you date this person before you had sex?" Mm-hmm. And uh, because the study required people to have been in a romantic relationship for a month or longer. Okay. And so. Um, we would ask this question. We say, "How long did you date each other before you had sex?" And they would say, "Well, we had sex, and then we decided to, da- to date." Isn't and we that were like, interesting? Huh? You right. know, like it's so backwards right. from what we knew, right? And yeah. so it just had never occurred to you know uh, us that that would be the case. It's so much this. They talk about this hookup culture where people find yes. each other on apps and on social media yeah. and, and they've never met and they hook up and they yeah. are physical and then they maybe decide, oh, I like this person. I want to see them again. Yeah. Yeah. Can you even imagine? I mean, and it, and it sounds, people still want the same thing in some ways, right? Like they still want sure. a connection. Sure. And that's one way of expressing it. Sure. But we don't even acknowledge what the positive things are when it comes to sex in like teenagers or in that age range right and well most people don't want to think about teens and sex like we just think no we don't want to go there but the truth of the matter is they're going through puberty or have gone through they have hormones they're human right 
But most importantly, <laughs> freshmen in college are 17, 18, and 19. Right. They're still teenagers. Right. And so if they, they're still learning how to have healthy relationships with right. people. And we don't even have much research on what yes. a healthy relationship, romantic, that involves sex looks like for somebody who is 16, 17, 18, 19. And I'm not even yeah. saying that that should be the case, right? But I'm saying that we can't even really, we're not comfortable even asking the question. Well, and now superimpose onto that this whole problem with sexual assault on campus or yes. sexual misconduct. If you're 17, 18, 19, and you're still figuring all that out, and yes. you're used to this hookup culture, yes. and something happens to you, mm-hmm. when I was in college, if something had happened to me, I would have known very distinctly that that was inappropriate. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's the same for kids who are coming up in an age where it's very common to hook up first. Right. So how do you even know? I mean, this is a conversation that's happening now is what is it that defines misconduct and assault and all of those things? And are young people confident in saying that was not warranted? I didn't want that. Um, and so I need to report different. it. Right. Even the frame is different. So right. what I mean by that is when we talk about motivations for sex, one of the things that we found was um, – we would ask both young men, uh, the girls in the study and the boys in the study, how many people have you slept with? Yeah. Both groups inflated the numbers. Really? Not not just boys. Oh, my you know, goodness. The, the, the variable was garbage for both groups, and that's because one of the motivations for sex is I, I want people to think that I'm normal. You know, teenagers wow. talk about having sex all of the time, right, or in some capacity. Even if they're not doing right. it. Yes. And so it, it's not just that you're getting something – like physical or even emotional out of it. It's that you want to feel like everybody else, essentially. You don't want to be the odd person But everyone out. else is lying to you. Yeah, you know, or, or they may be, you know, but, yeah. that's, but that's part of it. So, so right. we had, I would interview girls who would, um, these were girls who were, we classified as at risk because there wouldn't necessarily be a private space or as private as we would like mm-hmm. to be having these conversations. And so somebody walked by and they'd be like, Oh, I've had sex with uh, 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 you know, like eight people, and it's like, oh, no, gosh. no uh, yeah. that's not that's not what's going on over here. Or yeah. um, girls who didn't recognize that you don't have to count an experience that you didn't want. So See, that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, it's this so idea it is want and and yeah, what's actually happening. It, yeah, right. Um, that I, I think that they're from what little I understand, I I do think they still feel a lot of pressure, but a lot of that pressure is internal. Mm. Um, and so then are you, if you're going to assign blame, who are you going to assign it to in that right. sense? Like, you probably didn't want to have sex. Um, one of the questions that, or one of the things that we found was, it's not just black and white, right? Yeah, sure. It's not just that I wanted to have sex or I didn't want to have sex. Right. There's also a category of less wanted sex, meaning, you know, I didn't think it was a good idea, uh, but I didn't say no. It yes. was fine. I, I, I wish I hadn't done it. Most people, when they look yeah. on their experience of losing their virginity for the first time, didn't think it was a good idea. They wish they would have waited, right? So, wow. But it's not necessarily the case that they thought that the person was violative right. of them. Right. There is a gray area there. Right. That's, it's going to become more and more part of the conversation, I think, as we move forward, especially now so. with Me Too and all of these things. Like People yeah. are going to be much more aware of that gray zone than we've ever been in the past. Right. And yeah. I think that that's the important conversation that has to happen, particularly on in high school and college campuses, is what is actually unwanted sexual behavior? Mm-hmm. What is it that we don't want? Because the problem is... You're punishing behavior that people didn't understand was not wanted in the first place. Sure. And so when you do that, then any decision that you make seems arbitrary and capricious. It seems like it was random right. when it really wasn't, right, right, at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so that's what I am looking at now in my research is, is how do we even define 
how college students would define sexual misconduct on campus because right. it's not going to be the same right. as um, what other people might um, decide as far yeah. as that's concerned. Well, I think the work is really important, and mm -hmm. I think this might be a good place for us yes. to wrap up because um, I love that this is where you're headed. This mm -hmm. is what you're working on now. I think it's totally timely and really important work that you're doing, um, and I want to thank you so much for coming and sharing this with us because it's it's not an easy topic to talk no. about, but I think it's really, really important. Mm -hmm. And um, if people are interested in your work and want to learn more about you, we will have a link to your website Great. Um, in the podcast notes. So thank you again for coming. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Nice talking with you. You too. Plucky Ladies Podcast is recorded in the studios of the Office of Digital Learning at the University of Arizona. Special thanks to the team for recording, sound editing, and photography. You can catch all episodes of Plucky Ladies on SoundCloud, iTunes, and on my website, JessCap.com. That's J-E-S-S-K-A-P-P.com, and click the tab labeled The Podcast. Send me a message with your plucky story, and it might be featured on a future episode. Subscribe to Plucky Ladies Podcast and come along on all of my journeys into female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence.